so please help me welcome to the stage our writer, Gwyneth Hughes, our director, James Strong, our producer, Julia Stannard, our exec producer, Damien Timmons, and our stars, Olivia Cook, Claudia Jesse, and Tom Bateman. I said to you, James, oh, that you couldn't you hear your name over the rapturous applause. Oh, fair enough. This is James Strongardo. <laughs> there we go. So, Gwyneth, let's start with you. I know you love the book. When you were sitting down to adapt it, what did you want to get across to this new audience and, and what did you, you want to bring to the screen? I just wanted to bring Thackeray to the screen. I always describe myself as Mr Thackeray's assistant on this project because it's all there in the book. I mean, there's more there in the book. I did cut quite a lot, <laughs> obviously, because it's 800 pages. Um, but, um, yeah, I just I love this book. I just love the um, extremism in it, the, the lurching from, you know, laugh out loud funny to um, weep, weep into your hanky, free hanky job, one minute, and, and very funny the next. And I hope that we've managed to get some of that uh, massive contrast and, and just effervescence and excitement about the book, of course, because I just love this book. And if anybody in this audience um, is big enough to admit they haven't read it, <laughs> please do, because it's, um, it's just my... Yeah, it's just really up there with all the best works ever. And she is obviously the best heroine ever. If it is... People keep asking me today, um, is she a heroine? And I don't know. I mean, I just, she is to me. I want to look up to her. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, um, yeah, she's, I mean, she's not a role model, but yeah, she's a, it's, it's certainly a, a hero of sorts. You're with her the whole way through, aren't you? That's, mm. you, know, you want her to succeed, I think, in a way. Um, and there's kind of something for, for everyone, because it is that sumptuous period drama feel, but it is very fresh, it is very different, really, from a period drama. Was that part of your aim when you were sitting down to adapt it? Well, again, I'm just channeling Thackeray, really, because his book is different to other 19th century books. I mean, he was, um, as everybody knows, I'm sure, contemporary with Dickens, and they were sort of friends, although they <laughs> competed so violently that they, um, they pretended to be friends. But, um, oh, I love Dickens. Everybody loves Dickens, but there's nothing in Dickens that approaches this sort of level of unsentimental, um, grown-up, you know, adult fun. And an adult sort of, it's not sentimental ever, even when he writes fantastic death scenes that make you cry buckets, but they're not, how weird is it to say they're not sentimental? He's got this really, really cold eye allied to a warm heart, because he is the creator of all these amazing people. And I have this sort of idea of him in my head of kind of sitting up there in the sky as like the creator god <laughs> of this world and looking down at them all um, and going, oh, you know, humans. I mean, mm. what are they like? But aren't they sweet? Because he, he loves them all, as I do. I mean, I really am with him. He loves them all. They're just, to him, his children. And, um, and I feel that way about them as well. I hope the audience will get some of that. And James, when you got these amazing scripts, did you immediately think of the modern music, of the looks to camera, all of that? Or did that, was that the result of a lot of brainstorming? Um, well, it all kind of evolved and stuff. But we wanted to make it a modern and accessible kind of adaptation, one that felt right for 2000. And 18 and stuff. So all those things kind of were things that we wanted to kind of make it just feel like it was a period drama for people who maybe didn't always like period dramas. And so we wanted this to be as broad and kind of open and as appeal as possible. So things like the music and things like mm. the, the style of it, we just wanted to kind of break the rules a bit and bring it up to date and make it kind of, kind of, yeah, 
because not every period <laughs> drama has Madonna playing through it. But it, not, not it, many, I don't think. <laughs> it does. It does make it feel so much more modern. Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, more than in a in a kind of accessible kind mm. of way and stuff. I mean, but even that Madonna song is like twenty five years old, so it's weirdly, but it feels kind of contemporary for us. And I think it's it's just those bits of pop music that weren't around then. I think they would have been in the book and used and stuff. Perhaps if they'd been, they'd had a similar thing. So it's kind of just trying to think what the popular culture of then was and and bring some of that to this adaptation. And Olivia, we've already sort of touched on this, but Becky is a divisive character. You know, in in one way. She's a gold digger and she's a social climber, but she's also ingenious and the cleverest person in any room. When you first read these scripts, what was your gut feeling towards her? Um, I just, first of all, I'd never played a character like Becky and also I'd never read a character like Becky before and I hadn't read the book before I read the script, but then I did. Um, and I much preferred Gwyneth's scripts because it was just more condensed and, you know, Thackeray is wonderful, but he goes on tangents for 100 pages and I'm like, I don't know where I am. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, she is. She is devices, and but she's um, she's uh, she's a survivor, and she's a product of her upbringing or lack of. And so there's no other way for her to behave. She doesn't want to be destitute. She wants to be comfortable and wealthy. But yet she's deeply unsatisfied when she's met every hurdle that she's set for herself. And for Rawdon, she is magnetic. He's he's desperate to be around her. Do you think he's also being made fool of by this love story, or do you think? How dare you? <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I, I remember when uh, I uh, told my mum that I was doing this and she knew the book and she said, oh, you're the stupid one. <laughs> uh, I said, no, I don't, because what I like to think of is that it's just this sort of um, naive, maybe, but I think he gets totally taken in by her and he completely falls in love with her and... Uh, I mean, this, the, these scripts whip along so quickly, um, which I love ab about, about those two episodes, and I can't wait to see the rest in there. But it moves so fast. But I, what I really wanted, and I think Olivia and I talked quite earlier on and, and with James about how we wanted this to be a completely believable and hopefully very touching love story, which then, when uh, certain things happen, won't ruin it for everyone. But, um, uh, you know, that's tried and tested and, and what's left at the end of all that. Um, but at this point in the story, and for, for quite a considerable chunk of Vanity Fair, I think Rawdon is blinded um, by, by Becky, and the, he sees nothing but her, you know. Because like Becky, he's also bored and stifled by the society. Yeah, and there's no one that sort of matches, I mean, his, you know, aunt, aunt you know, she, she does, you know, I'm sure, and she's, but everyone else around the family, he doesn't fit in there. He comes and drops in and has some... Delicious mutton and turnips, but uh, but it's when she turns up and he goes, oh my god, she she sees what's going on, and uh, they're kind of like-minded, you know, even though she's much smarter than him. Oh, it's a teammate, sort of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Bonnie and Clyde, you know. And what do you think Becky is driven by? Do you think it's just money, or do you think it's status, or do you think it's the injustice of this society she finds herself in? Yeah, I think it's all of those things. I think she is incredibly talented, and, and she's had to be more intelligent and be more skilled than all the women around her because she hasn't got a status to fall back on or she's, and she's got no money to fall back on. Um, and I do think she, even though she's a, she's, she lives in the early 1800s, she still can't believe that because she has a vagina that she um, can't um, climb, she, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> she can't climb the ranks like a man could. Mm. And Claudia, Amelia is a very different woman to Becky, but she is drawn by, by Becky. She thinks she's 
fantastic and wants to be friends with her. What do you make of that friendship when they're so different? Well, she, she never would have come across someone like Rebecca. Like, Miss Pinkerton's Academy produces the same type of young woman, um, except for Rebecca Sharp, who sort of was used for her skill there. And I think I've heard a few people describe um, Amelia as the heart and Rebecca as the head, as the brain. Really? Yeah, I've heard oh, a few I like that. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I think she never would have come across someone like Rebecca before. She, you know, Amelia comes from a fairly sheltered uh, background, so I don't know whether it's a level of intrigue. And also, Amelia's like impossibly lovely. It's like she's almost terminally nice. <laughs> um, it will be the death of her. And so, like, I think she would do anything to sort someone um, and yeah so I think I think that's kind of what it is and even though they come at life from such different perspectives and, and they want different <laughs> things out of life they're both severely restricted by the society they live in do you think this piece has a lot to say about what it was like to be a woman at that time well yeah but I think what Gwyneth has made so exciting is watching two women making decisions and having no. friendship and talking to each other, you know, about just stuff, <laughs> which is amazing to mm -hmm. see. And then them both sort of messing up and um, not being perfect. Because I think we're so used to being like, oh, this person's brilliant because they made brilliant decisions and they're a hero, and this person's bad because they've made terrible decisions and that's a villain. Whereas I think William Thackeray's kind of like, um, this is what it means to be a human being, which is obviously incredibly complex, as we all know in the room. <laughs> um, and I think, like, because we're all brilliant, but also a little bit crap. Because, and that's just the nature of what it is to be a human being. And I think watching two women just make decisions, live life, and probably mess up along the way is really refreshing. Because then it's just like, oh, these aren't just two women. They're two human beings um, against, obviously, a restrictive background and a beautiful backdrop. And Julia and Damien, it's an incredible cast that you put together. How difficult was it to find that cast and to get that balance between a really young cast driving it forward and then those really familiar faces dotted throughout? I mean, it's important you say about a young cast because, you know, they are so young. You know, Amelia and, and Claude, um, Amelia and, and Becky are 17 and 19 when we meet them and, you know, out of school and rushed into marriage. Um, you know, George and Dobbin are, you know, in their early 20s and rushed onto a battlefield. And I think just preserving the youth of Thackeray's characters is incredibly important just to, you know, get that sense of naivety and innocence. They were so young and so much was thrown upon them. Um, and then I think another thing that's important is there is so much humour in Thackeray's writing. So not only were we looking for sort of ter terrifically talented actors, but, you know, people who could handle the humour. And we've got some comic geniuses in the form of Martin Clunes, Francis de la Tour, Sean Clifford, uh, Matthew Bainton. So it, to be honest, it was just a complete delight to cast, wasn't it? It was, uh, you know, wonderful characters from Thackeray and, and wonderfully realised by Gwyn. Yeah. It is. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, putting together the cast of something like that is such a massive jigsaw puzzle. You can't, in the kind of months that it takes to work it out, it, you, you're kind of holding your breath, aren't you, trying to see if it goes. Yeah, playing and chess. We were so excited that Olivia wanted to be Becky, because mm -hmm. I think there have been versions of anti in the past.
past, mm. controversially. That, that, we, this is not the first. But I don't think there's ever been a version of anti-fair. I hope we've cracked this, but where Becky and Amelia are uh, as complex and wonderful and contrary and winning is, 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 is this term. I think that we're so lucky the chemistry between you both has, it, it, you know, it is the, the beating heart and the brain of the thing. That hasn't, without that, I think Vanity Fair can feel like a very mm. chilly Superficial. Thing. And I think this just has so much emotional welly. And then being able to build around that with people like Simon Russell Beale and you know, this young cast who have such extraordinary careers ahead of them. It's really exciting to see that all under one roof. And Gwyneth, that opening fantasy sequence with the carousel is so evocative, <coughs> such an amazing way to start it. Where did you get that idea from to make it start like that? And I know you wanted it to be Michael Palin, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, really, really luckily for us, Vanity Fair is not just my favourite book, but Michael Palin's favourite book. <laughs> it was his Desert Island Disc book and everything. So, I mean, it was supposed to be the first idea I had. I mean, my, when I sat down to write the first script, I wrote that sequence. Um, and, um, you know, Thackeray's talking about the Vanity Fair in The Pilgrim's Progress, obviously, which we do allude to in this episode. But for us, in the modern world, a fair, fair, that sounds like that is, you know, a fairground, that's what we're expecting. And, and because Thackeray is such a showman, he is, he is showing us his world, he introduces us, he's in control, he's like the circus ringmaster. And we wanted to to find a way to use his voice and use, get that sense that he is in control. He is in control of this wild, mad carousel. And then, of course, A, we had to find a carousel. <laughs> that wasn't very easy. <laughs> Steam-driven thing. <laughs> and then we had to find our Thackeray. And obviously, if we didn't get the right Thackeray, we all knew we would have to bin it as an idea. Couldn't just be any old cove, you know, turning up. Had to be someone that the audience... <laughs> <laughs> would immediately welcome into their homes and understand uh, that this guy is in charge. Understand him and welcome him and feel safe in his arms. And, um, you know, he, Palin was absolutely our first thought. <laughs> and we didn't even know then that it was his favourite book. So, as he's been saying before, that he did one very long night and has appeared in seven programmes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and because yeah, obviously you can write it, but James and Julie, you've got to make that happen. I mean, <laughs> that's a long old night shoot with a, a big old carousel. How easy or hard was that to put together? Uh, well, that particular <laughs> night was quite a long, <laughs> chilly night. The thing was, our lovely cast here, they, if you notice all the shots with Michael Palin, these guys are going round and round in the background. We like span you know into delirium. I, I actually forgot you were on it for a bit. And we yeah. were just for about an hour, and then suddenly like... Get them off, they can have a break. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great to have Michael just for that one day. And, and the whole thing, we sort of didn't quite know how it would work, but then on the night, this carousel kind of lit up and it lit this whole field up and the guys with the fire and suddenly it was like, wow, this is, this is quite magical. So we were kind of jumped on it and grabbed it. And, and similarly magical was the scene at Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens at the shot at Zion Park. That looked incredible from your perspective how difficult was that to bring everything together and well it was such an iconic place Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens you know it was this crazy phenomenon where people from all different walks of life would turn up and there would be music there would be fireworks there would be flame eaters there would be hot air balloons tightrope walkers everything so literally we had to deliver all of that so it was a big number for our brilliant art department um, live band wonderful composer helped us with that but it's really just bringing all the different elements together and then peopling it you know it had to be crazy busy it had to be you know chaos so it and we had three nights to shoot it so Heathrow 
Under black the, under the black <laughs> so Any second it wasn't window. easy. <laughs> and you had to have a monkey. Oh, and the monkey who was actually dressed as Napoleon, but she kept taking her costume off. Mm. <laughs> it's a little bit difficult. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other big set piece that we haven't seen, but that everyone was talking about on set, was the big Battle of Waterloo. Yeah. You made probably more of that than there is in the book. Why did you do that, and how did you guys deal with the challenge with Star with Ebert? So the. Um, if you've read the book, you'll know that the uh, battle is sort of noises off. So Thackeray stays with the women. He's much more interested in the women generally. Great writer of women, actually. He stays in Brussels with the anxious, frightened women, and it all sort of happens over there somewhere. Um, when we first began doing this, we had a slightly anxious conversation about how, what we were going to do about the Battle of Waterloo, because obviously, you know, like, the fleets meet, the most <laughs> expensive thing you can possibly write. And we, we said, oh, it'll be all right, because Thackeray doesn't really do it. And... And then we parked it in denial, that we <laughs> worry about it later, at which point we were, Bacon was saved by Amazon, who came in not only, you know, as co-producers with some <laughs> of this, but also going, we love the Battle of Waterloo. Right, we went. <laughs> and we had a great time, didn't we, inventing it between us. I mean, we worked really closely together, me and James, on that. It wasn't just the usual thing, write the thing, throw it at James, he goes away and shoots it. It was... We, you know, we just kept refining and refining it to get the three chunks of battle that were the most interesting and to keep that really character-driven so that there's no battle scene that doesn't have one of our young, vulnerable young men in it. It seemed, it seemed remiss that this was this key pivotal moment in the whole story and that we, we weren't seeing it. So we just felt we had to go and do it. And, and then you've got to go and do it properly because obviously mm. it's, you know, it's a big thing to do and do it badly would be awful. So... It was a lot of research and a lot of logistics and a lot of... And a lot of extras. A lot of extras. Yeah. A lot of, lot of money. That you trained <laughs> specifically. Well, yeah, we had like two or three hundred extras who... They trained as Napoleonic soldiers for a week or so and, and you know, our military advisor, he trained them. and So they were absolutely kind of really kind of real and, and, and completely kind of authentic, hopefully. And we put our kind of actors in the middle of it all and all the effects and the explosions. And what I wanted to do is just try and make it feel as real as possible and some essence of what it was like on that, that horrendous battlefield. It was an awful kind of battle, and, and so to try and kind of get some of that was, was really important. But it was a big old endeavour, um, and, uh, yeah. And, Tom, you had a, a great view of this vet score <laughs> on a horse, right? <laughs> I did. <laughs> how, I did. how was it to be inside that? Uh, well, as you say, I had a great view. I was actually uh, outside of that. Um, <laughs> I was up on a hill with a, with a telescope. Uh, watching it all happen, uh, um, but it looks amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. And David, we've already talked about this trying to be a sort of definitive version of Vanity Fair for this generation. What do you hope that the audience will come away thinking about this book, having seen this version? I mean, I think what we've what we've tried to do, and watching it today, I think maybe stumbling towards is make something that sits very comfortably on ITV, which is an entertainment channel. It's got to be entertaining, it's got to be accessible. But I think it has, I mean, just you know, reading what Gwyn said, it has to have integrity for Thackeray fans. And I think it does, it's about uh, honoring him in a wonderful, sheeny, shiny 21st century way. I mean, that's. And I'm going to open up for questions in just a minute, but I have to ask the three of you, it is a period drama, however fresh and modern it is. What was it like being in a carriage, wearing the dresses, having all of that 
kind of, you know, you're not in front of a green screen, you're in these amazing houses and locations. What was the experience like for the three of you? I always say, like, the corset is about 70% of the work. Because, like, <laughs> as soon as I've got one on, you're like, okay, well, I've got no choice. <laughs> you, it sort of adds a level of regency, so, I suppose. And all the locations we had were, like, mm. phenomenal. Mm. They were so beautiful. And each time, it was just, we'd get, get dropped off and be like, oh, my God! <laughs> Crikey, another one. So, yeah, it was, like, so beautiful. We were so lucky. And then, you know, the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens was incredible. I'm sorry, because we, we did spin into delirium after a bit, because we were <laughs> yeah. going out and all of us just like... <laughs> <laughs> I think after a bit, I can only apologise, because some of us might have been in hysterics. Um, so, yeah, if it, all of that does so much of the work. It certainly does for me. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm just going, well, there we go. <laughs> but it adds so much to it. <laughs> Fabulous. Brilliant. Well, time for some questions from the audience. So please put your hands up, and there'll be mics coming around. Yeah, Lady down here. Yeah. <laughs> so, Gwyneth, you added the Battle of Waterloo and you had 800 pages to somehow get into is it seven hours. Seven. How did you decide what to leave out? Um, so, as, as probably everybody knows, Thacker was a journalist by trade and he wrote, you know, for money. He wrote, he was paid by the page, basically. Um, and he was writing this in serial format, writing a bit literally running down the road with this copy in a bag, flinging it at the printer. Printer would set it, Thacker would go for his tea, come back to the printer, find how short it was, run home and do another extra bit. So Thacker was very much, never mind the quality, you know, keep writing. It's amazing how brilliant the book is under the... Unsurprisingly, therefore, towards the second half of the book, <laughs> it does flag a bit. It's still lovely if you love the book, but it's a bit repetitive, it's a bit, oh, God, they're going around the world, who cares? Um, Oh, you know. So I, I, it's to illustrate what I cut, we've done seven hours. In the book, The Battle of Waterloo falls right in the middle. In our uh, show, it's episode five. So that you can see that I've mm. made most of my cuts in the second half of the book where I think it, it's not so interesting. And the other reason it's not so interesting is because I began to feel strongly as I was writing it that what I was recovering out of this sprawling panoramic book was really... <coughs> a single story about these two girls and their friendship and how one goes up and one goes down and that that was the red thread that we were following. Mm -hmm. So anything that took us away from them for too long, it was an easy choice. To, once I decided that that was the thing, these two girls and their love for each other and their enmity and their struggles over many years, um, then it was kind of easy to work out what to cut. Oh, and that, and of course, in Victorian novels, everybody has too many relatives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cut the relatives, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't as hard as you might think, actually. Hope I've cut the right things. But. Fantastic. Next question, just here. Um, she stole my question, but uh, um, I'm just uh, wondering how you did... I mean, interesting, sorry, rambling here. Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens became a gigantic brothel in Victorian times, as you probably know. I don't know if it was way back then, but... Uh, where did you find the material for the scene that you added about Waterloo? Was it in Tolstoy or uh, contemporary writers? Or Oh, I just read a lot of history books, which is a great pleasure to me. I love to read the history and I hate to write the script. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I just read and read and read. There we go. Are there going to be any scripts? Oh, I've just got to read another few books about <laughs> No, there's lots and lots of fantastic... If you're interested, I can recommend some fantastic any, any books. Any particular about one that you would mention? Um, there's one called Something Like Went the Day Well, um, which is about the actual 
day. There's a great one called... Um, oh, no, we can't talk about this. Well, we'll, we'll put it... <laughs> <laughs> um, Welcome to... A great one called... That's about dancing into battle, which is all about the social history, all about the ball that they had and the kind of how women... You know, the women, they'd all been there for a year before the battle because it, England had become... OK, Brexit speech. Mm. England had become too expensive to live in, so everybody decamped to Brussels, and that's where they all were when, when Napoleon escaped and the war began again. Loads and loads of British society were marooned in Brussels. They were already there, having a great life, going to balls, and then suddenly, oh, we've got a fire. Oh, blimey. You know. So, yes, it's just normal historical research, actually. Nothing clever. Excellent. <laughs> uh, next question. If you could pass the mic down that way. Brilliant. Hello, good evening. Uh, my name is Tim, um, Tim Reed. I, um, first of all, it was brilliant, although it surpassed my expectations. Um, I think, secondly, I guess to Julia's point around the young cast, what I'm used to seeing from uh, dramas is people like Martin Clunes, Saran Jones, and Michael Palin, they're very much the star of the show. And I think your point around the actual young actors are the stars of the show is almost, almost with respect, those other actors are secondary um, in terms of the limelight. And I suppose a question for you all is. Um, taking your modesty hat on, how far can this show go in terms of being, it's got a platform with, on ITV, how far can it go in the UK, US, globally, awards, in your opinion, in terms of how it, and also yeah. I think for the actors themselves, you guys who, who are... Um, I don't know if TV can get nominated for an Oscar, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I guess for the actors, it's an amazing <laughs> platform, as usually, in my experience, those Martin Clune star figures are very much front of house and Another, so the platform, I think, is, is amazing. So the question is, how far can it go and how far can those actors go? Well, Damien, it is a co-pro with Amazon, isn't it? So that's going to give it some international scope. It is. We don't know how many people have watched on Amazon because who knows what the Amazon story really is. But um, it's, it's, it feels like it's going up a, a level by having that Amazon partnership. And certainly in terms of... Funding of it, it was transformative. We wouldn't have, we, we literally wouldn't have the Battle of Waterloo. We wouldn't, you know, the version of Vauxhall, Pleasure Garden, as you see, would, would not be there without. Um, so I hope it's a virtuous circle where and I think the, helps. I think the question was are you excited to have this international platform to, to be leading this big drama that could be seen around the world? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's me singing. I'm sure they've done some magic and some zhuzh in the edit room, but, you know, I can't play piano. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> uh, next question. Uh, put your hands up high. Yes, over here, this lady. I'd be really interested to know about where some of the locations are and where did you do the Battle of Waterloo? Oh. Well, we shot the Battle of Waterloo at a, a place called Maple Durham, which is actually where The Eagle Has Landed was filmed many years ago. Um, and most of our locations were around London because, you know, London is such a big character in, in the story. So rather than sort of running off to Bath or Bristol, we decided to do as much as we could in, in, in London and keep that character in the piece. Um, we also did a week in Budapest. Was there a specific location you were interested to know about? Um, Russell Square, which is meant to be where... The so that's Fitzroy is. Square. Where? Fitzroy Square, which is about one minute away. Heavens. With fewer buses. <laughs> <laughs> With fewer buses, as Gwyn says. Excellent. Uh, another question? Oh. <coughs> Put your hands up high. OK. <laughs> 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 They're being shy. Are you sure? 
I'm going to ask another one if no one's going to ask one. Um, obviously, originally, this is a satire. And the comedy, I mean, we're all sitting here laughing away watching it. How important was it when you're condensing that story to, and trying to keep the thrust of the narrative to, to keep that humour and how difficult or easy was that for you? Well, the thing is about writing funny stuff is that you think it's really funny when you're writing it, but you have no idea all the way through the process, all the way through writing it, giving it to James and the cast. And put, you have no idea if it's funny or not until you put it in front of an audience. You know, you people today have been the first audience. People laugh. You go, oh, thank God. <laughs> because there is no way of telling. We all sit there. We laugh and cry all the way through it. We sit there. ITV boss lady, every time we got to a certain piece. <laughs> but we just, we're so quite close to it and we love it and everything. So we all know each other. But it, honestly, it's great that it, those of you who laughed, thank you from the bottom <laughs> of our collective heart. Because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a drama. I'm really a sort of thriller writer. I write ghost stories and stuff like that. So I'm shoveling in this humour. Some of it's from the book and some of it very definitely isn't. And I don't know. They laughed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and was there much corpsing on set, for instance, when France was singing? Or? No, very serious. <laughs> I think there was probably more corpsing oh, than not corpsing. Yeah, there was a time on the beach, which is not this <gasps> further on, Too Tom good. had his arm around me and had to squeeze my ribs in to, to stop me from pissing myself at Claudia again because it was on her close-up and I just couldn't help it. Not that you've got a funny thing. But it's just the... <laughs> But it was, it was so Cheers. it was so lovely because sometimes it was really really grueling because we shot it for five months and it was really long days and it was over winter and you know I think all we could do is really just laugh at each other. Also, David Finn's not very helpful. The guy who plays Joss, yeah. he's not very helpful <laughs> because he's super hilarious. Mm -hmm. So he'd have us like crying before like like moments before like rolling. So we'd all have to be like <laughs> and like suck it all back in again and just go through a scene and then afterwards be like. <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. it's really difficult. And he doesn't break either. No. He dishes it. Because he's the one that tells the joke. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible <laughs> position of power. Amazing. Another question? Anyone? Yes. This man here. Oh. <laughs> Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask about, I know you already touched on the music and the use of um, the contemporary tracks, but I want to ask about Isabel Waller-Bridge's amazing music score, and it's so present in it, it feels like a character in itself. And I just um, want to ask about the musical journey that went through and how that came about. Um, it was, we were just trying to kind of take that modernity through into, the, into all aspects of the music. So we have kind of the... the Great, the amazing song at the beginning, and then we have a track at the end. And so the score had to kind of support that and complement that. And it was trying to find a kind of a, you know, a, a kind of a style that was, I think it's called neoclassical or, or just a modern kind of classical feel that felt correct and and worked for the drama, but also had a just had a slightly different edge. So um, I think Isabel did a great job at kind of finding that tone that was, you know, quite difficult really for lots of reasons. But we sort of persevered and, and, and I think found a really kind of unique kind of sound for the whole show and you know it's 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 this this is kind of one or two episodes but then it really kind of develops and changes and stuff so it's you know it's an amazing piece of work. Great and um, it's probably time for one or two more questions if there are any more burning questions if not then uh, it's left for me to say um, guests of Mammoth Screen there are drinks for you back there <laughs> Otherwise, for the rest of us, there's the bar or the Ritz. Um, and uh, <laughs> nothing else for me to say, but thank you so much for such a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.